0: much should unity in the body matter right now and these are the questions we need to be asking when we come to this chapter and we honestly will find that some of us have been settling for getting along or even i'm not in any hostility with a particular person right now and calling that unity but is that enough well, before we get into chapter four, I, I know for myself, and I'm sure for many of you, a month is a long time. The last time we talked about, you guys talked about Ephesians chapter three, things have changed. So I know for me, anyway, it was helpful to look back and quickly remember all that Paul has already covered in his letter to the Ephesians. Um, part of the inductive Bible study method includes that. It says, okay, where does this section I'm looking at fall within the broader letter or the broader context? Um, That we're that we're looking at Um, So we need to remember first and foremost who Paul is writing to and we were know that he's writing to this church in Ephesus And what was that church that church was a highly diverse? Unlikely uniting of people. It was a group that was living just outside of this robust and growing city there was all these little tiny connecting communities that were meeting together um, and there was really very little that brought these Christians together and kept them connected. They had a lot of socioeconomic differences. They had racial and ethnic diversity, problems that came up and conversations that were difficult to have. There was relational tension in the church at the time that he was writing. There was an us versus them, often in mentality. And there was, frankly, division. And there was separation between how do we treat each other as a body and how do we relate to the world? And I'm taking time to remind us of all of this because I think as I remember who the Ephesians were, I think this is a lot like Risen Hope Church. It's a church that has so much beauty in its diversity, but it's hard fought And when we read Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians, we really don't have to work very hard to see the correlation, the translation to right now who we are as Risen Hope Church. And I will say that maybe repeatedly throughout tonight. So if you're saying, hey, you're not part of our church anymore, just pretend, okay? Today, I'm one of us. I'm one of you. So let's review what he says already. So in chapter one, we're going to do this pretty quick. He shows us that we've been united first to Christ, adopted into his family, and that we have access to every spiritual blessing as part of our inheritance. So whatever your background or your heritage or your lifestyle beforehand, you are now first and foremost a child of God. And then in chapter two, he reminds us that we who were once enemies have been brought near through a bond of peace, a commitment by God to remain united with us, going so far as to make us part of his body. And this is a gift of undeserved grace. Like who we were before Christ, we didn't do anything to accelerate or even to aggravate or, or impede his merciful pursuit of us and his salvation. So he did all the work required to make peace between us and God. And then we see in chapter three that Paul broadens the power of the gospel's effective redemption. So not only are we personally at peace with God, so he's done that work, but now the gospel, this good news of peace is made available to everyone without exception. And it is the message that will, we see this in verses 9 and 10, it will bring, light for, bring to light for everyone what is the plan for the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So God is uniting to himself to not merely us as individuals, but to us collectively. A gathered family, his church, his bride. So then Ephesians four is the turning point of Paul's letter. So Paul's now is going to spend the remainder of this letter informing the church of how those truths are to be practically experienced and exemplified right now. And if we read chapter four and its subsequent sections about, uh, you know, husbands, wives, servants, children, elders, if we read those in isolation from the rest of the letter, we'll likely get bogged down in a lot of lists of do's and don'ts. And we might even begin to question if what Paul is holding out for us is even possible or realistic. So we can't read uh, Ephesians 4.1, which talks about walking in a manner worthy of our calling, without remembering the predestination of chapter one. And we can't read verses 22 and 23 in our, in our chapter about the old self and the new self without remembering chapter two, when he talks about what our old self was, which was dead and what our new self is, which is made alive in Christ. So we need to make a habit of looking at these commands within their context. And so if this were considered like blog, Paul's like blog post on how to maintain unity, this would be if you hit skip to recipe, it would take you to chapter four. So all of it's important, but this is like the how to. Okay, and if you're more like me, where YouTube tutorials are your thing, not blogs, then like this would be like at the two minute mark when they stop showing you the before and afters and like, look at how good this can be. And instead, they're like, okay, really, this is how you do it. This is what you need. This is how much you need. This is the step by step. So we need it all. We need the vivid picture of the finished product and we need the detailed and sometimes laborious instructions. So chapter four. Paul makes his main point clear in the first verse. And if you have your Bible with you or your phone and you want to look at it, that's fine. I'm using my notes here, so um, I'm going to read that for us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And he also concludes, if you jump down, he concludes that chapter with similar language in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul is saying that if chapters one through three are true, it should be expressed primarily in how we treat one another as believers. So let's think about that. If we've received the gospel, the primary application of our peace with God is reflected in how we maintain peace with one another in his body. So if you want to evaluate the genuineness of your faith, look at how steadfast and resilient and deepening your love is for others in his body. We are made to be one body. So this unity that he's talking about is deeper than just a linking of arms. It's not. association. It's sharing a bloodline. How we treat one another as believers is a reflection of how we have been treated by God. So we see this earlier in Ephesians as well. And frankly, if you were to look over at Colossians and some of the other letters Paul's written in other churches, you see similar themes traced through all of these. So this isn't just isolated to this church. This is something he reinforces often in many of his letters. But specifically, when we're looking in the context of Ephesians, and here in chapter four, we'll see that also expressed in verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the imagery of one body here is very intentional. It means that we can't just coexist with one another and we can't settle for affiliations. It's not just like a mental unity. Like I I think I'm close with these people and it's not a physical unity. I live close to these people. Risen hope is privileged that a lot of you really are close together, but that's not primarily what unites you. It's not your zip code. It's not your distance to the church. It's not your commute. It's, It's holding out for us a unity that is more pervasive. It makes those who are other now one and the same with us. But this unity does require diversity, which is interesting because you would imagine that if Paul's writing to a pretty diverse church, it's something that they just have naturally. But no, he also expresses this explicitly. So one of the ways that he does that is, hold on just a second, let me find, I had a quote here that I wanted to share. Um, Let me see if I can find it. There it is, okay. Um, Here we go, sorry. Okay, yeah. So our churches should reflect the beauty of diversity, Because it reflects God himself and Nikki's talked about this other people have talked about this and I've been a part of meetings where we've talked about this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we all need to remember that our unity is that moving picture that living image of the unity shared within the Trinity right the father son and the spirit distinct different and yet one unity in diversity. So the world will expect people who are similar to get along. The gospel alone can bring diversity into harmony. And Jay Daniel Hayes, I'm going to share this um, quote with you. J. Daniel Hayes has a quote here that's a little long, so I thought if I posted it, it would be easier to To kind of see what I'm saying here, but he emphasizes at this point really well, the importance of diversity in our experience of unity. When he says the New Testament demands active unity in the church, a unity that explicitly joins differing ethnic groups together because of their common identity in Christ. Believers form a new humanity. The old barrier of hostility and division between ethnic groups has been demolished by the cross. Now, all peoples of all groups are to be one in Christ. Christians of other races are not just equal to us. They are joined to us. We are both part of the same body, united by the presence of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us both. And we are also fellow heirs, brothers and sisters in the same family. So we know that we are different from other believers just because of our strengths or maybe our convictions or maybe even in our personhood, how we look, how we act, how we behave. So how diverse can we be and still be unified? Or to put it another way, how do you achieve unity if you're seeking to maintain a healthy amount of diversity? Well, Paul clarifies this in the chapter as well in verses 9 through 11 when he speaks to giving different gifts, not to shine on their own stage, but for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So our diversity is one of those gifts for building unity. Unity is not going to be dependent on how similar we are. We need each other's uniqueness as a vital contribution to our gospel witness. And we need to view our own set of gifts or experiences rightly. So we need to know how effectively is our uniqueness being contributed to build up the church. We need to value diversity expressed in others while evaluating if our own expressions of it are being deployed rightly for the benefit of building up the church in unity. So we know so far chapter four is establishing the importance of unity. We know it requires diversity. So how do we achieve it? The answer is we don't. It's actually already happened. We are already united. And we don't have to make it happen. John Stott put it this way. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. So just like the Trinity can't be broken, neither can the church be that's bound to it. We need to be careful to start our quest for unity from the right place. If we it from a desire to attain it, okay, we have to get unity. We have to earn unity. We have to make it happen. We'll, then we'll never make the finish line. But if we start from an assurance that Christ has already attained it, then we can do our job, which we see in this chapter, is simply maintaining it. There is a difference. We should be assured while we're aspiring to unity. Not to make something work, but because we're part of a work already begun. And all we need to do is our little part. So we walk in unity with one another because we are already united in Christ. So we're going to spend the remainder of our time doing a quick review of some of the ways Paul describes how this unity is maintained. And we we're going to see this primarily in those first three verses. And I wanted to, to, to take this approach as opposed to kind of hashing out other concepts we see in the, in the chapter. Because we're in a season right now where it is particularly relevant due to our current relationship climate to talk about building up the church in unity. We're not able to gather like we normally do. We're not able to feel tangibly that comforting experience of coming together as a body, of of hugs, of, of coming into people's homes, of sharing meals, of seeing people's faces, of watching facial expressions. Those things are not as available to us right now. And because of that, in so many ways, our words, spoken or typed, have become the places where unity is finding its primary expression. And if you are like me, (laughs) words are falling short so much of the time. I wish I could just be with somebody and not just talk to somebody. I want to be around people and not just looking at people. Words are, are failing me in both receiving comfort and in how I feel like I can communicate comfort. And so I just wanted to take time for us to pause here and reevaluate some of the ways we can help build unity in our church, especially when we think about how we're using our words, since that's a primary tool we have right now to interact with one another. And as I do this, as we talk about these different categories, I I want us to put away, if we can commit to this, I want us to put away names or groups or circumstances or titles that we think are making it harder for us to experience unity and instead agree to do, let's just do a self evaluation. How am I doing in this? What's my contribution? Where are my areas of weakness? So not worrying so much about, yep, yeah, that, that person's not doing that, that person's not doing that. Let's look at ourselves. Let's be honest with ourselves. If the people of God that you are united to You're not feeling great about right now. If you aren't really in unity and harmony with them right now, well, good news is you'll have all of eternity to spend getting right with them. Bad news is you're spending eternity with them. (laughs) So I think it would be wise for us to take some time to figure out how to figure out some of these relational things since we are going to be spending time together in community for eternity. And Lord willing, this does, even talking about these things, thinking about these things, reminding ourselves of the gospel in these ways, Lord willing, my prayer has been that first and foremost, we see how Christ has done these. We see how Christ exemplifies these, and we find encouragement through his example. And secondly, that we are encouraged to grow in these ways, to love our church, to love Risen Hope Church more effectively. So the first one that we see from Paul is humility, and it's first on the list for a reason. Matthew Henry states, for the first step towards unity is humility. Without this, there will be no meekness, no patience, no forbearance, and without these, no unity. Pride and passion will break the peace and make all mischief. Humility and meekness restore the peace and keep it. So it's important that we think of humility as an active state, not a reactive state. We're not asking people to humble us. We're not walking around being like, okay, I want someone to be on the receiving end of a bunch of put-downs. No, a humble person is someone who has a low estimation of their own necessity to something. But it also can't be confused with self-pity, because that's just another form of pride. Humility is just seeing ourselves rightly in light of a holy God. It's knowing that we have value, we have worth, but that's because it's wrapped up and found in Christ. So if we have gifts they are from him and meant to be used for him. If we have strength, they're from his power. If we have favor or blessing, it's from him. Humility is acknowledging that when we go to church, no one there is more deserving of the gospel than we are. We are the most forgiven sinners we know. Humility is spending less time defending ourselves to others And instead, choosing to hide in the blood of Jesus that covers our sins anyway. Humility also defies that drive to be an autonomous individual. And it says, I need help and I need others. We can't confuse honesty with humility. Those are not the same thing. It's not just a willingness to be transparent about where we're struggling or Maybe even just stating, here's some sin categories that I'm going through. No, it's being proactive in rooting out sin and receptive when others bring us thoughtful observations. So we never outgrow our need for others to hear their observations or even their corrections and ask for accountability. And if we think we've outgrown it, we're not in a mature place. We are probably in a dangerous place. So the first Area we need to grow is humility. Secondly, gentleness, which is often um, used in other translations as meekness. So we're going to kind of interchange them here. But John Piper says this about people who are meek. Meek people begin by trusting God. They believe that he will work for them and vindicate them when others oppose them. Biblical meekness is rooted in the deep, deep, confidence that God is for you and not against you. It is a bridled strength. It's an unwillingness to use force that we could use merely because we have it. So it's the opposite of explosive. John Stott says, it is the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. Meekness is not apathy and it doesn't remain oblivious to wrongdoing or injustice. Paul is not saying don't care about justice. No meekness is rooted in discernment in knowing what deserves our righteous demands for justice and what doesn't and it also helps us know what kind of reaction is warranted best for that injustice. Meekness can only thrive if we are confident that God is just, and will judge justly, and he will judge all things rightly, regardless of how we experience justice today. So meekness is not a failure to act on something. It's intentionally not overreacting. And Piper says, again, meekness loves to learn, and it counts the corrective blows of a friend As precious. And when it must say a critical word to a person caught in sin or in error, it speaks from a deep conviction of its own fallibility and its own susceptibility to sin and its utter dependence on the grace of God. I I read that quote and I thought, how often would my interactions change if I felt a desperate need for God's grace refreshed on my own life before I ask someone else to experience it for themselves? How would that change what I say or how I say it? So humility and meekness unite us as people who need one another and who value one another. And we care more about the way we share our thoughts than the need to be heard. The how matters more than that we just do it. The next one on the list is patience. William Tyndale says that patience is a slowness in avenging wrong or retaliating when hurt by another. And this is hard. This is is a hard one. Being patient with others isn't just a willingness to wait for someone or something to change, but intentionally remaining in relationship with them, even if they never change. And that's really hard. Our culture right now is promoting this attitude of quickly distancing ourselves from others or things that offend us. You did this wrong, cutting ties, building walls, minimize contact, throw up the the screen or shut down the laptop, like shut it off. But here we need to recall the imagery of the body again. We can't cut people off any more than we can cut off limbs or sever nerves. Unity requires us to be steadfast and endure in relationships. I do wanna pause here though, and I think it's very important to address an important distinction with the term patience. Having patience with someone who offends us and continuing to find ways to engage with them in peace, it does not mean tolerating abuse there are very clear biblical christ mandated protections for those of people who profess sometimes even to be believers but live in such a way where their actions are only destroying those around them they're only harming they're only tearing down we are not being asked to stay in those places and to simply put up with it that's not what paul is saying Like meekness, this call to patience requires discernment. Our proximity or our availability to those who are sinning against us may change depending on the circumstance, depending on what that other person is doing. It's our heart posture towards them that must remain consistent. We must remain ready to maintain a peaceful relationship with them as far as it depends on us. Patience does not mean that our relationships have to look the same no matter what happens. Relationships will change. But it is a refusal to use someone else's sins against us as an excuse to treat them poorly in return. The next category is to bear with one another. So in case we missed it Paul adds the phrase bear with one another to drive home that point that we are to remain in a long-term relationship with a long-suffering mentality. So to bear with someone or to forbear with them is literally to lift them up but also to esteem and to value them. So you could even meet like translate it to say it's putting up with people. So bearing with one another requires an intentional effort to suffer the weaknesses of others the way God in Christ has endured your own. So where meekness doesn't overreact and patience doesn't return evil for evil, bearing with somebody broadens it from being this intentionally sinned against category. Now we're just talking about people who bother us, people who rub us the wrong way, people we just don't really like, people that we don't get along with sometimes we can be affected by things that weren't necessarily the result of someone trying to intentionally hurt us and we know we've been a part of things i know i have been a part of situations where i haven't intentionally tried to offend or hurt somebody and yet i have it wasn't me intentionally sinning against them but the result was offense things like messiness or clumsiness or laziness or forgetfulness or insensitivity. And so we have those categories of everyday inconveniences. And then there's also the category of major life events that affect us and change us for seasons. We, we lose our capacity, we lose our personality, our, our, our availability. So Things like a difficult or demanding job or tantruming kids, a season of tantruming kids, or aging parents, or financial uncertainty, working from home while homeschooling your kids, you know, or a pandemic. Like those are all things that just come. It's not necessarily because one of us sinned and we all are suffering from a pandemic, but we all are dealing and grappling with the changes that those things bring. And Bearing with one another in love means we are willing to walk with each other in these seasons of suffering or simply sit in the ashes of loss with them. It means we listen or ask helpful questions instead of inserting our opinions or our own personal experiences. It means a willingness to comfort others with our presence when we're able or just carry them in our prayers or with some acts of service. It cares more about the process of lamenting than figuring out the purpose of that particular suffering. It means we don't have to hurry someone through something to speed them to this point of recovery. Just get to this point. I want to see you through. No, I'm here to wait on the Lord with you and doing it together. So Paul ends all of these encouragements for unity by binding them together in peace, that bond of peace. Well, everything we've talked about should produce peace, right? Like we're not shouting, we're not arguing, we're not ignoring, we're not belittling, we're not making demands. Shouldn't peace be a natural byproduct of all of that? Well, it's not. Peace must be eagerly maintained so often we can settle into this comfortable place where we may think feel like things are pretty peaceful as long as we're not in any major conflicts with somebody or we're not a part of any specific situation that's particularly stressful but real peace is actually more pervasive than that it is both treating one another kindly and deepening our affection for one another Simply getting along and not being particularly angry at someone is not peace. You have to be growing in love for them as well. Marcus Barth elaborates on this word eager that Paul puts there, eager to maintain, that Paul uses. He's saying not only is it haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, his sentiment, the whole attitude. It excludes passivity, quietism, and a wait-and-see attitude. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Do you feel that urgency? I, I just I do really love when he says it's against that wait and see attitude. So many times we need to fight that false truth that says that peace will happen organically or can be achieved without any kind of consistent, ongoing, hard work. Peace isn't handed out to us, it's built between us, all of us sharing in the work together. So remember. Just like unity though, we aren't creating peace, we are maintaining it. So John Stott says this again, to maintain the church's unity, it must mean to maintain it visibly. So the peace that's already internal, that we've experienced both peace from the Lord, peace that we should be expressing towards other, it's that visible, it's promoted externally. The world is filled with anxiety right now. And the church, our church, churches, broader churches, we're being pummeled from every side and from inside. So peace can feel sometimes like a pipe dream. Like, I don't know if we're going to be able to ever get back to that. But we need to remember the peace that we already have. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Our unity in peace is not dependent on a feeling, but on a person. Christ himself, by making peace between us and God, has become our peace himself. So our peace is as real as Christ himself is real. So as we continue to study chapter four this month, my prayer is that we would be eager to maintain the unity in that bond of peace and experience in a greater way the peace that we have received and share that in a more vivid way with those of his body who we love and i want to close this in prayer and then after i close this in prayer i'm going to post Um, some discussion questions, and really all they are, are asking us to do, again, some self-reflection on ways that we can contribute to building unity in the church right now in this month, in the month of August, as we study Ephesians 4, what are ways we can build up the body Um, and not worried so much about what other people are doing or how they're making it harder, but more reflective reflecting on the wonderful, rich peace we have received and how we can deploy that, express that, share that with the body. So if you would bow your heads with me and pray, I'm gonna close. Lord, thank you for the beauty and diversity expressed, especially at Risen Hope Church. Lord, this church is a vivid picture of your creativity, of your unity within your Trinity, and, Lord, also just of your elaborate and extravagant grace through the gospel. Lord, we are all standing here in need of refreshment. We need to grow in our love for one another. But, Lord, we can't do that. Without first reflecting on what we have received from you. Lord, help us not to reach into an empty well for love for each other, where we just kind of pull ourselves up from the bootstraps or try harder or just try to muscle up more love or try to do it through through some type of, well, if I remember this or if I do that or if I work harder at this. Lord, help us to come again to the cross, to receive again that beautiful blessing of forgiveness, of adoption, of reconciliation, Lord, and part of our inheritance, just taking hold of that. Help us to take hold of our inheritance, Lord, and and fill that well so that as we give to others, as we express love to others, Lord, we're, we're doing it from a place that won't run dry. Lord, if we ever are having trouble treating one another in love, Lord, help us to quickly return to what we know to be true through the gospel that you sent your son to die for us so that we could love others just as we have been loved by you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for these reminders. I pray that we would do now the hard work of examining where we fall short but lord refreshed and where you desire us to grow knowing you will equip us to do this work because you have already united us and you've already instilled peace in us thank you for this time together in your name amen amen thank you so so much missy um wait one one second